All right, my name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors. I'm glad you're here. If you're new, I would love to talk to you after the service. So feel free to hunt me down. I'll be out in the lobby. And um, we are just a group of people. And, and we have had this incredible experience with God and he's changing us and we don't really understand all of it, but we know who we stand under. And the more we come, the more we surrender, the more God changes us. And, and we come back just to worship him and to study his word, but more importantly, to apply his word to our lives. And, and we've been in this series uh, about revelation, the end of times, the revealed story of Jesus Christ. And uh, this is week 27. So we've uh, spent some time in this book um, for good reason. And I want you, we're getting ready to head into the Great Tribulation. And I was just going to encourage you in your spare time, which I know you have a lot of, um, you may want to go back and listen to the fourth week of this series called The Elephant, where I talked about the elephant in the room and how we as Christians have to deal with the wrath of God. The, how we struggle with the idea that God wiped out nations of people and children. And, and I think it's important that every once in a while you go back and just relook at the, the elephant in the room. What do you do with the wrath of God? Now, one of the things I think that we're really good at a nation, as a nation, we're really, really good at worrying about everything. We should be the United States of anxiety. Every day we're bombarded with terrorism risk, crime risk, economic collapse, political division, global warming, the instability of our infrastructure, whether cell phones cause cancer and if aliens are flying over us in balloons. I think it's worse in our nation because we've depended on humanism. The worship of human and human intelligence instead of worshiping God. Imagine facing all the things in the world thinking that no one's in charge of anything. That the best you can rely on is human intelligence. Without a belief in God, our nation has to turn to itself for answers and we don't have them. That's why everybody's so anxious about everything. Anxiety tells us that we don't have the answers for what confronts us. Every moment it seems someone on TV is trying to get us to worry about something else. A typical commercial break, <coughs> excuse me, you don't have enough life insurance. You're not sleeping on the right pillow. You're not feeding your dog bistro meals prepared by a world-class chef. And that brand new car you bought is now a year old, probably needs to be replaced. We have an insatiable appetite to find something to worry about. What stuns me is the one certain thing worth worrying about nobody seems to worry about. They don't even consider it. The day of judgment lurking in the future, that's something to worry about. The day when God will finally say enough, enough of your nonsense. And everyone must stand on whatever they built their faith upon. Perhaps the writer of Hebrews said it clearly. Hebrews 10.30, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. 
It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's something to be concerned about. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. If you're going to choose something to drive your anxiety, choose that. Keep your dog on dog food. Just focus on that. Jesus said it this way. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Hmm. Throughout human history, God has poured out his wrath, his righteous judgment on sinners. Adam and Eve's sin in the garden brought the entire human race under judgment. Noah's day, people become so wicked, God sent his justice in the flood to destroy the world. Only Noah and those with him on the ark were spared. Centuries of disobedience by the Jewish people ultimately led for their judgment, first the northern kingdom from Assyria, then the southern kingdom from Judah. God's wrath and judgment were constant themes in the Old Testament, particularly through the prophets. They frequently warned of the coming day of the Lord. All these prior judgments were previews of this last and most terrible day that would come. The prophets. You see, there's a day that's been talked about for thousands of years. A horrible day. A day when God's justice will finally be unleashed in its full fury on everyone who rejects Jesus. The prophet Isaiah Wail for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord comes cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. Prophet Zephaniah, the great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth will be consumed. For a full and sudden end, he will make all the inhabitants of the earth. Gather together, yes, gather, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect before the day passes away like chaff, before the day of the anger of the Lord. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. Prophet Amos, therefore thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. Job warned that the wicked is reserved for the day of calamity. They will be led forth at the day of fury. There's a day on the horizon, 
a very real day, as real as any other day in the world, when God finally unleashes his just, appropriate, measured wrath on those who have rejected him. We don't like to talk about it. But God's wrath comes in several manners. The first type of wrath we see from God is the you did this to yourself wrath. Your sin and you have sinned and it has consequences that you will suffer because of the decision you made. Galatians 6, 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap from the flesh, reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Sometimes God gives you what you choose. The second kind of wrath is a cataclysmic wrath where God sends massive destruction, it seems, in a big manner. It can involve the whole world like Noah's flood. Or it could just be a city like Sodom and Gomorrah. And then finally, the wrath we're talking about today, eternal wrath. God's wrath that will be poured out on the whole world. This wrath will send those who reject Jesus to hell forever. 1 Thessalonians 1.9 For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. But here's the incredible part. Despite the fact that God in his justice must punish those who reject Jesus, he does everything he can do short of taking away free will to not have to do it. A strange paradox exists. God is constantly working to save sinners from his own wrath. You see, God's nature encompasses not only righteousness and holiness, but grace and mercy. Even during the judgments of the tribulation, God's going to keep calling sinners to salvation. He'll do it using the 144 Jewish evangelists, the two witnesses, a lot of saved Gentiles and Jews, an angel flying over warning the whole world. As the outpouring of divine wrath escalates and we get closer to the end, God's evangelistic efforts are going to escalate as well. The worse the judgment gets, the harder he tries to save people from that very judgment. The result is going to be the greatest harvest of souls in human history. A redeemed Israel and souls from all over the nations will be saved. Many survive the tribulation and enter the millennial kingdom. Even as God is issuing his wrath, he's telling them, please don't make me do this. My mom used to tell me, this is going to hurt you worse than me. Or me worse than you. I could never get that right because it seemed to hurt. <laughs> but I know that with a child, when you have to correct them, it, you want to almost save them from it, but you know you can't because then they don't grow up to be the person they need to be. You see, almost every story in the Bible is about God trying desperately to save us from ourselves, to reject our sin nature and to choose His. Now we're coming to the final days and John begins to see it unfold. Revelation 15, verse 1. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing. 
Seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last. For with them the wrath of God is finished. John sees a sign in heaven. This is the third sign that he's seen in heaven. In 12.1, he saw the sign of a woman clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. Then he saw the sign of the great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. This sign is preceded by the terms great and marvelous. It expresses the enormous importance of this sign as it, it foretells the final outpouring of God's wrath on wicked, unrepentant sinners on earth. The sign itself consists of seven angels who have seven plagues. The same beings who care for and minister to God's people will bring God's wrath to a sinful world. The word plague here in Hebrew literally means a blow or a wound. Seven plagues are not really diseases or epidemics. They're powerful, deadly blows from God that will strike the world with killing impact. These seven bold judgments are important because we learn in this verse that from them, at the end of this, the wrath of God is finished. These are the last remnants of a wrath that has to be poured out. It implies that the preceding judgments were plagues that also expressed the wrath of God. So God is moving towards the end. The word thumos or wrath is a strong word that, that, that describes rage or a passionate outburst of anger. God's anger, God's wrath, God's thumos must be expressed against all unforgiven sin. It's fierce wrath. Zephaniah wrote about this, Zephaniah 3.8. Therefore wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, and to pour upon them my indignation, all my burning anger, for in the fire of my jealousy all the earth shall be consumed. With these seven plagues, these seven blows, God's wrath is completed. And, and the word completed here really, it really means reaches its goal, accomplishes what it's desired to do rather than coming to an end because God's wrath is going to continue when he throws Satan into a lake of fire later. But what this is telling us is with these seven bowls, with these seven plagues, seven blows, whatever you want to call them, comes the end of God's judgment against people for their choice regarding sin and salvation. It ends right here. Too many people, I think, quote 2 Peter 3.9. Let me just read that to you. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish and that all should reach repentance. And that is so true. The problem is, I think a lot of people think that means they have as long as they want. They think that they have forever to choose Jesus, and tonight's not promised for anybody. And it's true that God is patience, but patience demands eventual action. Patience is delays in action, not no action. That's why Peter continues in the next verse. 
but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and all the works that are done on it will be exposed. Yes, God is patient. Yes, he is waiting. He's hoping everybody comes, but that does not mean it's never going to happen. Peter says, it's going to come like a thief because you think he's just being patient. It's really where we are in this story of Revelation. The last seven bowls are going to bring the final measure of God's wrath to those who reject him. Revelation 15, 2. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And also those who conquered the beast in his image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. This image has been seen throughout Scripture. What John saw was a transparent platform, a throne that has around it the sea of shimmering glass, crystal. Moses got a glimpse of this, Exodus 24.9. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. Ezekiel saw it. Over the heads of living creatures, there was a likeness of an expanse, shining, awe-inspiring crystal spread out above their heads. And John has seen this before as well. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peal of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures. And then he goes on to describe the creatures. But this time, John sees that same crystal sea with fire. The fire of God's judgment is burning around the throne. The writer of Hebrews talks of God's wrath. He says, those who reject God's grace and mercy face a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. He says our God is a consuming fire in Hebrews 12. Fire is often associated in Scripture with judgment, God's judgment. Around the sea, around this sea full of fire, there are those who have conquered the beast. Those who stood for God during the tribulation. A few weeks ago, we read that the Antichrist was given permission to wage war against the saints and to overcome them. Revelation 20, verse 4. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image or had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. These saints are now victoriously standing next to the throne and this sea of glass with fire and crystal water. The believer standing there will have undergone the terrors of tribulation and suffered painful, violent deaths, many of them as martyrs. Yet despite having endured the most intense persecution the world will ever know, their faith, which is a gift from God, endured. Eventually they will stand triumphantly before the throne of God 
And they're watching as God takes his vengeance on those who persecuted them. Interestingly, these tribulation saints are seen holding harps of God. They're rejoicing and singing praises to God. Harps were associated with praise earlier in Revelation, and they're frequently in the Old Testament. These believers are praising God and rejoicing because their prayers for God to take vengeance upon their enemies is about to be answered. You see, in our times, one of the parodies that we see of heaven are winged people on clouds, aimlessly playing harps. Such an image distorts this because this is the only place where humans playing harps is mentioned. 24 elders are the only other ones with harps and they don't have wings. These are literally harps given to them by God. In ancient times, harps were more like handheld modern guitars than the ones we think about that are huge in play. The the implication, however, is that these saints are praising God. Why? And what are they doing? What are they singing? Well, Revelation 5.3, they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. That's interesting. They sing two different songs. One is of Moses. One is of the Lamb. One is from the time of the law. Another is from the time of faith. They sing two songs. The song sung by the saints before the throne is praise to God. The ultimate motive of, is God's wrath and his holy righteous character. What they're praising God for is you are going to take care of the people that did things to me. You see, the historical setting for the Song of Moses comes from the time of Exodus. Moses was called to lead the people out of Israel through captivity, if you remembered, and he delivered them. And Pharaoh's army came after him. And remember, the Red Sea was split. And they went through on dry land. And then after they were safely across, the waters collapsed and they drowned the entire Egyptian army. Imagine their emotions on that day as they stood on the other side safe after they've just watched God judge their enemies. The very people who had enslaved them and their parents and their grandparents and they get to watch them being destroyed by God in justice. They could hold their emotions no longer and they burst out a familiar song. On the far side of the Red Sea, the Israelites sang a song of praise to God for their deliverance. The song of Moses. A great hymn that celebrated the power and bringing His people salvation and release from their enemy. This song was sung by first century Jews regularly on Sabbath evenings in their synagogues. Here's a brief feel of the emotions and content. The enemy boasted, I will pursue, I will overtake them, I will divide the spoils, I will gorge myself on them. I will draw my sword and my hand will destroy them. But you blew with your breath and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders. You stretched out your right hand and the earth swallowed them. It's the song of Moses. Just think about the setting. For centuries, 
The people of God had lived in Egypt, a foreign land. A monstrous Pharaoh had come to overpower them and oppress them terribly. Enslaved, they lost all hope. They'd given up any chance of anything ever being right again. The God of their ancestors appeared to be silent, unable to respond to their cries for help. And then a feeble attempt to help by self-appointed Moses seemed to have ended up in disaster. Just when they thought they were being delivered under divine authority, Moses returned with a promise of freedom. Plague after plague had hit the Egyptians, demolished the pride of Pharaoh. Finally, the firstborn plague brought release, but that joy turned to horror as the army started to follow them. When Pharaoh's army followed, the waters split for them and God divided the waters and they passed through on dry ground. But then the waters eventually returned to normal and drowned the entire army. Not one of them survived. Imagine the praising that they did on the other side that night. They'd just seen the miracle of God. They had literally just been delivered from slavery. And they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. You see, in addition to singing the song of Moses, who led them through redemption in Egypt, now another group of people who've been delivered and redeemed are standing with another song. The theme of the second song is the song of the Lamb. It echoes the first song. It reminds us of the power of God in saving His people, and it's no different from the Old Testament to the New Testament. The song of Moses was sung at the Red Sea. The song of the Lamb is sung at the Crystal Sea. The song of Moses was a song of triumph over Egypt. The song of the Lamb is a song of triumph over Babylon. The song of Moses told how God brought his people out. The song of the Lamb tells how God brought his people in. The song of Moses was the first song in Scripture. The song of the Lamb is the last song in Scripture. Song of Moses commemorated the execution of the foe, the expectations of the saints, and the exaltation of the Lord. Song to the Lamb does the same three things. You see, the song of the redeemed saints talks about God's character as omnipotent, immutable, sovereign, perfect, righteous creator and judge. Because he's all that, God must judge unrepentant sin. If he ignored their sin, he wouldn't be holy and righteous and true to his nature. The prophet Habakkuk said it this way, your eyes are too pure to approve evil and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. Job says, does God pervert justice or does the Almighty pervert what is right? And the psalmist says, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. The song closes with joyful anticipation of the millennial reign of God when all nations will come and worship before God. 
word of the psalmist, Psalm 66, all the earth will worship you and sing praises to you and they will sing praises to your name. In the future millennial kingdom, it will come to pass when all will praise you. After God's righteous judgment has been revealed, the time anticipated by Isaiah will come. And it shall be from a new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all mankind will come to bow down before me, says the Lord. That time will mark the phase of the fulfillment of Philippians 2.10. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Those who are in heaven and those who are on earth and under earth as well, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God. Song of the Lamb closes with three reasons for bringing God's name glory. First, you alone are holy. A special word for holy here means perfect moral purity. It occurs in Revelation only here and one time in Revelation 16. Because of God's perfect holiness throughout all eternity, he's to be worshiped. You see, the Antichrist tried to appear to be holy but he was blasphemous. Second, all nations will come and worship before you. The Antichrist appeared to have accomplished this, but the attempt was destined to fail. We'll read later in Revelation 21 on the occasion when all the nations came to worship and acknowledge God. And then third, your righteous acts have been revealed. As opposed to the Antichrist's wickedness, your acts have been revealed. So they're singing this song, they're the martyrs, they've been killed, they've been tortured, and, and now they're looking for justice. John looks again and he says, after this I looked and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was open. And out of the sanctuary came seven angels with seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. As John was visualizing all this, something draw his attention to another dramatic vision. The redeemed saints are praising God, and then all eyes turn to the temple, the tabernacle, the place of the Holy of Holies. This is the real one in heaven, the one that was modeled here on earth by the Israelites. This is where John previously had seen the door open and the Ark of the Covenant shown. The last thing John saw when he looked at this was two angels who would harvest the grain and the vines and reap the earth. But now something is stirring at the temple again. As John watched seven angels who have seven plagues come out of the temple. These represent the final deadly judgments that are going to be poured out on the world. And these seven angels are going to execute that plan. They're clothed in linen, clean and bright. The fabric representing their holiness and purity. As fits such glorious, holy, majestic beings, the angels are girded around their chest with golden sashes running from the torso and the shoulder to the waist. The term for linen here is unusual, not found elsewhere in the New Testament, applied to clothing. John may have in mind the multicolored linen used to make the tabernacle or the high priest's robes. It's clean, it's shining, it suggests angels' purity as they go about the task of judging impurity. The royal appearance of the sashes matches the risen Lord when he first appeared to John in Revelation. 
If you remember, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and I, turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. These seven angels have very specific responsibilities. They are going to be the instrument of God's wrath. Jesus talked of this. Son of Man will send his angels. And they will gather out of the kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. And throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Here in a new vision, we're giving the instruments of that execution. Verse 7, And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. We've seen these four living creatures before. If you remember, uh, we saw them as they brought out the horsemen, the four horsemen of the apocalypse in the first seal judgments. These bowls were part of the temple ceremony. They were associated with sacrifices. They have seven golden bowls. The golden bowls previously, if you remember, were used to hold the prayers of the saints that were offered as incense to God. Now the answer to those prayers, God's wrath, is overflowing and filled to the brim. These bowls represent the wrath that has been stored up for the last day for the sins of those who are unrepentant. The imagery is not going to be one of steam being poured gradually out of a pitcher or a stream or this is the whole contents of the saucers that is being hurled instantly down to earth. That's what these are going to look like. It's not a drop, drop. It's a whoosh, and it's all gone. Sound effects. All right. When the seven angels outside receive their commission, something incredible happens inside the temple. The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and his power. This too reminds us of Moses and the Israelites. In the wilderness, after their redemption, they set up the temple. And if you remember from Exodus 40, 34, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of God filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Smoke, an emblem of His majesty, also symbolized God's glorious presence in the Old Testament tabernacle or temple. It represented the presence of God. Smoke pours out of the temple. Millions standing on the red crystal sea and smoke on the water of fire in the sky. Until now, the only smoke associated with heavenly temple has been the prayers of saints smoldering before the altar. Now the entire temple is engulfed. It is full of smoke. It is clear that the entire temple is housing the presence of God and no one can enter that temple until these seals, these uh, punishments, these judgments are finished. It symbolizes God's wrath. The glory cloud will remain on the temple until the earth is completely purged, cleansed, and prepared for the king and his kingdom. 
God's voice from the temple will both initiate and conclude the work of the angels. After chapter 16, we will not see this temple again, for it doesn't exist in the millennium. Revelation 21, 22, and I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. Okay. We're about to see the final seven bowls of God's wrath poured out on what remains of mankind. The final and the definitive judgment of God for unrepentant sinners. It's easy to read the great tribulation and focus on the bowls of wrath and focus on the people on earth. But I think God, through John, wants us to turn our eyes somewhere else. During this intermission, this pause before the bold judgment, I think God wants us to see the millions of believers and martyrs standing by the sea of the crystal glass. At this point, God has moved on. Those on the earth are simply problems to fix, to take care of. I'll pour bowls out, they're done. What John is saying is, why don't we focus on the victims of these people? Why don't we focus on the martyrs that are standing by the sea of glass? God has reaped the earth, remember. He saved the believers. Those remaining on earth are stiff-arming God. In fact, they're shooting the finger at Him. Today, we hear a lot of people claiming that God is patient and kind and He doesn't want anybody not to be saved. And that's true. But His patience eventually has to act. The wrath of God is not done. It's just delayed. By the time God pours out the seven bowls of his final wrath on earth, sinners will have been warned repeatedly to repent. They will have experienced numerizing, terrifying judgments, seven trumpets, the seven seals. And they acknowledge that all those came from God. They, they acknowledge, yes, this is from God. They'll have heard the saving message of the gospel preached by the 144,000 Jewish evangelists. They will have seen the witnesses testify to God, the power of God overcoming them, and watch them come back to life. They will see millions of redeemed Jews and Gentiles who are being martyred and sacrificed for their faith. And if that's not enough, this angel flew by overhead and told everybody of the gospel. And tragically, they still reject God. Do you remember a moment earlier in the city series when the martyrs cried out for justice? The fifth seal? Revelation 6 9. Then I opened the fifth seal and I saw under the altar the souls of those who'd been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? They're crying out for justice. They've been martyred for the faith. And then each were given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Now, the end is here. Those people have been killed. They are standing at the sea of glass. They too were martyrs for the faith. They didn't take the mark of the beast. They overcame. 
and they too are crying out for justice. He says, rest a bit longer until the full number of those to be killed are killed. Well, that moment's now. Seven bowls have filled to the brim with the fullness of God's wrath. And instead of just those under the altar, now the massive number not only fills the altar, but stands along the crystal sea that is almost boiling red with the fury and wrath of God, a sea with fire coming out of it. They are the audience that John wants to make sure we don't forget. You see, while they are standing with harps, singing praise songs for deliverance, God is in the temple preparing that deliverance. They're the same as the Israelites who turned back and saw their enemies destroyed and sang praise songs to God. Now these martyrs are going to get to watch as God pours out his wrath on those who martyred them. Alone inside the holiest place, God is in the temple, his Shekinah glory pouring out like smoke. He's in the Holy of Holies and he's measuring out his full and final judgment. Like the Israelites who stood and watched the seawall collapse on those that had hurt them, these believers stand in the final moments when from the holiness that is the Holy of Holies, God finally gives them justice. I think John wants us to focus on them. But we focus on the wrath and the damage it's going to do to people that have rejected God. Around this sea of glass, watching God at the temple, are people who've been crying out for justice. They see the bowls of wrath and they know finally justice is going to come to those who hurt us. Think about that. Every messianic victim of the Holocaust. Millions who were molested, raped, murdered. All the people who were victims of a world turn against God. All of us who've cried out for God to do something. God through the scriptures, the prophets, Jesus and the apostles all spoke of this day. The day that everyone should be worrying about. Think about what they're saying. He is faithful. He didn't just save us. He's bringing justice to everything and everyone. Yes, God did count every tear. He watched every injustice. God said, wait and allow me to handle this. I know you are hurt. I know you want justice. But vengeance is mine, he says. While souls are outside the temple praising God with song and harps, reminding all the way how God delivered the Israelites, knowing in the same manner he's about to deliver all of us inside the temple, God alone pours up his bowls of wrath. Soon he will be able to say it is done. Justice has been measured and delivered and sin can no longer hurt my children. You see, John's focus has turned to heaven. And I believe ours should as well. Satan wants us to feel for the victims who've rejected God. Tries to have us focus on the people that are undergoing the wrath of God and the great tribulation. But God says no. He says, the real victims are with me. They're here. The martyrs have come home. I'm delivering in full force the justice they deserve and have waited for. 
Yes, it's God's desire that all come to trust him and trust what Jesus did on the cross. And yes, he's patient and he gives every opportunity to try to save us, even when he's having to pour out his judgment upon us. But patience is not passive. Instead, he eventually delivers what he promises. That, that day on the horizon is the only day anybody should be worried about. Make sure on that day you're standing under the protective arms of Jesus. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you tell us in advance what's going to happen. I thank you that you want us to know that no matter what's happened to us, no matter how horrible it was, no matter how it seemed you stood by passively as we cried out for help, no matter how much we don't understand it, there will be a day when you will bring justice to every hurt, every sin, every pain. For many, Jesus will take that for them. But for those who are unrepentant, for those who stiff arm you, that judgment is to fall and fall heavy because the damage is great. Your just is not out of control. Your wrath is not unbalanced. But it is just and it is full. So God, help us to remind people of the day that's really on the calendar. Help us, God, to focus on that day and make sure that our friends and family know that they can stand under Jesus through faith. We love you. We thank you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.